Welcome to Housing Park Proceedings and the Reality of Housing Court, a podcast series of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Enforcing Orders to Correct, Agata Rumprek Behrens, a court attorney currently assigned to the HP part in Queens Housing Court, moderates a panel discussion with Vijay Kitson, a partner at Hertz Sherson Rosenthal, specializing in landlord-tenant trial advocacy. Rachel Nager, a tenant attorney and advocate representing tenants in housing court. Paul Gadansky, a supervising attorney in the Tenant Anti-Harassment Unit at HPD. And Judge Shorab Ibrahim, a housing judge appointed in 2018. The statements and opinions of each speaker are their own and do not represent the views or opinions of other speakers, the Housing Court Committee, the City Bar, respective law firms, or the Office of Court Administration. Here's Agata Rumprecht Behrens. Welcome back to our podcast. My name is Agata Rumprecht Behrens, and I am the court attorney currently assigned to Queens County Housing Court. In our previous episodes, we discussed the basics of HP proceedings, how to get repairs done, and we also talked about tenant harassment cases. So how are court orders and stipulations enforced? What can a litigant do if the other side breaches the agreement? We're going to talk about that later, but first, let's reintroduce our esteemed panel. My name is Vijay Kitson. I'm a partner at Hertz, Sherson Rosenthal, and I specialize in landlord-tenant trial advocacy. Hi, everyone. My name is Rachel Nager. I'm a tenant attorney and advocate representing tenants to fight for housing justice issues against displacement and gentrification. My name is Paul Godonsky. I'm currently a supervising attorney in the Tenant Anti-Harassment Unit at HPD. I've been there for three years. Prior to that, I worked as a housing attorney at the Legal Aid Society and the New York Legal Assistance Group. Hello, everyone. I'm Sharab Ibrahim, a housing court judge appointed in 2018. I sat in the HP Park in the Bronx for two years. And before becoming a judge, I practiced in housing court, including in the HP, um, for about 15 years. So let's go back to law school and do a hypo. Let's pretend that we have an order to correct. The judge ordered the landlord to abate a leak in the bathroom ceiling, remediate the mold on the bathroom walls, and to exterminate for mice in the entire apartment. All of these repairs were supposed to be done by July 15th, and access dates were set for June 7th, June 8th, and June 9th. Well, now it's August 18th, and the tenant is complaining that the work has not yet been done. All right, so let's talk about exactly what the tenant can do in this situation. First, I would like to thank either the HPD attorney or the court attorney for drafting an order to correct that actually has an end date for the repairs rather than something that's a little bit uh, more open for interpretation. Sometimes we get uh, within 30 days, but 30 days of what? 30 days of the date of the order, or 30 days from the first access date, or 30 days from the last access date. But in this um, scenario, it's they should have been done by July 15th. So after July 15th, the tenant have it, has every right to come back to court and seek some relief from the court. What can that be? Um, the first thing we would probably want or say that they can get is contempt of court. There has been a court order, it has theoretically been violated, and they should be able to do a motion to bring the case back to court and ask that the other side be held in contempt. 
of course, if contempt is proven, they may seek other damages as well. They may also ask that the court assess civil penalties, which are not payable to the tenant, but payable to DHPD. Um, so the court would look, speak to this person bringing the case back, see if the time frames have expired, if the statutory time frames for the type of violation has expired, and probably sign an order to show cause to put the case back in court. We can talk about uh, the language of the orders to show cause later on. So what is the actual process to seek contempt of court? Let's say that in our hypo, the tenant claims that nobody appeared on the selected access dates. So once a tenant has gone through the process that we described in episode two and successfully brought their HP proceeding, they received an order to correct from the court, how do they really enforce an order? Um, and before we even talk about access dates or not, one of the things like the judge just said is that the tenant can seek civil penalties. And basically, when a violation is placed by HPD, a penalty is attached to that violation and the clock starts ticking. So each day that the violation remains, the penalty increases. And not only can the tenant seek civil penalties, but HPD, if you remember, who is also a city respondent to the HP proceeding, can also seek civil penalties. And civil penalties are paid to the city and can also be collected by the city. So it's important to have a good consent order first. Like the judge mentioned, one factor would be the time frame and what the time frames or multiple time frames and what they run from as to each violation or type of type of violation or violation class. I would like to put in a plug for HPD's standard form consent order. If you use that form, it's difficult to go wrong. The judge and Rachel will get into some of the things you have to prove to prove contempt. One of them is that you have to have a clear order. With HPD's form consent order, generally you won't have that problem. It's very specific. If you use an inspect and repair stipulation, or if you agree to mark your case off and say, if the landlord doesn't comply, you can restore the case, then that's a situation where you might not be able to seek the relief of civil, of contempt or civil penalties. In terms of... Uh, the hypothetical in tenant action, HPD evaluates its position on a case-by-case -case basis. The vast majority of the time, so long as there are open violations that bear out the conditions, we will support the tenant's enforcement action, which could mean litigating alongside the tenant, helping provide information, helping with settlement negotiations. But of course, tenants have the right to prove conditions that are beyond what's in our reports, as you've discussed on prior episodes. If tenants are represented by counsel, we'll coordinate with them. Obviously, they're the person who is directly in touch with the tenant. If the tenant is pro se, there's a chance we could bring our own enforcement action, but that's not as common these days since our various units who are our clients tend to be on top of making referrals when buildings have problems. And so when we seek civil penalties, generally it's in the context of a case that we bring, although we also could do it within a tenant action. 
So why don't we talk about what are the defenses that are available in civil penalties? You want to talk about that, Vijay? Sure. So once a tenant has brought a motion to impose civil, civil penalties against the landlord for failure to do repairs, um, the defenses are spelled out specifically by statute. We went over them, I think, in episode um, one or two of our podcast, but they're found in the Administrative Code of New York City, 27 uh, 2116B1 and 2, um, and to just kind of briefly go over them. Um, the first offense is the violations were corrected within the time specified in the notice of violation or the consent order. Um, and then the second defense is kind of a, uh, you didn't get the repairs done, but there's a reason for it. So, uh, the penalties should be mitigated or entirely eliminated because the tenant didn't give you access to complete the repairs. You required permits to do repairs, but they, um, didn't issue in time. Um, and the violation itself, uh, was caused by the neglect, abuse, or, an act of someone out of the landlord's employ. So um, the tenant did it or the tenant's guests or family did it, or maybe it was an act of God. Um, It's very important to note though, that none of these defenses will relieve the landlord of the obligation to perform under the order to correct. They still have to fix everything. And if you're trying to present to the court reasons why you were unable to timely complete the repairs, You really need to show, um, the statute I think spells out that you have to show by competent proof um, financial data, so canceled checks for hiring uh, workers or getting materials, uh, efforts that you made to get the materials, whether or not you put the tenant on notice for access in accordance with the code, um, those kind of things. It really, you have to show that you were trying. You can't just wait until the tenant brings the case back to court to turn around and say, um, these reasons didn't happen. You should really be proactive in trying to get this, and you should take pictures of any def- uh, any, anything you tried to do to remedy the problems or anything like that. Um, I will often tell my clients that waiting for a tenant to bring a motion for civil penalties is the wrong way to go about it. If you have a reason why you weren't able to comply, then you bring your own motion to compel access or to try and stay the imposition or the toll or, or toll the accrual of civil penalties so that you can kind of get around uh, being on the back end of uh, a motion like this. And I'll note, PJ, um, that several judges have written decisions um, that have pointed to the fact that the landlord only responded with those types of Um, in quotation marks, uh, defenses once the tenant restored the case rather than being proactive and asking the court um, for an extension to correct conditions and noted that, you know, if you're just going to wait and sit back, it doesn't look great for the the landlord in that type of situation. Uh, And I should note, I should note just uh, especially here that, well, there is an absolute obligation for a landlord or an owner to fix conditions. There is also an absolute obligation under the Housing Maintenance Code for a tenant to provide access to the landlord to remedy those situations. So you can use that area of the Housing Maintenance Code uh, to your advantage if you have problems with cooperation. 
Yeah. And I like that um, as we're speaking about access, um, that VJ, you have clearly spelled out the defenses to civil penalties, because I see so many respondent owners when they're answering an HP proceeding petition that they're conflating the differences between a defense of the HP versus the defense to a civil penalty. And so, like you also said, VJ, in episode two, they're very limited defenses to an actual order to correct. And those defenses are different than defenses to civil penalties. Yeah. So I'm sorry to interrupt, Rachel, but uh, I'll just uh, second what uh, you and VJ are saying on on this issue. Um, Landlords will often, or their attorneys will often put into their answer that they're not getting access uh, or they weren't served in a tenant action, that they weren't served with a notice of violation. And while those things might constitute defenses to civil penalties, they do not, do not, repeat, do not constitute a defense to an order to correct. And so that happens every day in the HP part where uh, respondents are conflating those issues. Yeah, thank you, Judge, because as a tenant practitioner, I do find it sometimes very annoying to see almost boilerplate answers of defenses that aren't defenses. Um, But Judge, also, as you were saying earlier, uh, one way a tenant can try to enforce um, their order to correct We've talked about civil penalties, but the other way, like you were saying, is to bring a motion for contempt. And so when a tenant is bringing a contempt motion, a tenant can ask the court for all of its costs and expenses, including attorney's fees and $250 in addition to the damages because of the landlord's noncompliance with each HPD violation that still exists after the time allowed in the order to correct. So in our hypo, um, you know, if the deadline has clearly passed and the conditions are still existing, no one showed up on the access dates, then the tenant can seek all of those remedies in their motion to correct. I mean, excuse me, their motion for contempt. And CCA 110, the Civil Court Act 110, which we spoke about in the first episode, the same legislation that created the housing part or housing court, um, it clearly states that the housing part has the power and the authority to find a party in contempt of its orders. So remember that CCA 110 actually gives housing court housing court judges really a tremendous amount of power. And contempt is one of those things that the housing court judges may do. Yeah, um, I think that's settled that uh, housing court judges are real judges that have Um, the power to issue contempt orders. If I may um, offer a practice tip, not specific to any case, and this will come along later when we talk about being very careful drafters of uh, contempt motions. And if you're claiming damages, and, and really that's one of the, probably the best um, ways to get compliance if you haven't already had it, I mean, the fact that you have to make a contempt motion is in itself a problematic, but if you're claiming damages, you're going to need to have some proof, including an affidavit from the person that is uh, has been damaged, 
of what your actual damages are. Otherwise, the court is going to be limited in all likelihood to the $250 award that Rachel just mentioned. And there's no guarantee that the court will bifurcate the case and say, oh, you have, uh, I'm finding the other side in contempt. Now let's have a hearing about damages if you haven't raised the issue properly to begin with. Rachel, why don't you walk us through the process of filing a contempt motion and what is required? Yeah, so the procedure and service is very specific, and it can be a bit tricky if you don't know some of the important rules around bringing a motion for contempt. So there are two forms of contempt. There's criminal contempt and civil contempt that you can bring in housing court. And both of them call for jail time, fees, penalties, And I won't go into everything, but generally the main difference between criminal and civil contempt is that if you bring a motion seeking criminal contempt, you have to show that the landlord's failure to comply with the order was willful. So if you're only seeking civil contempt, then you need to show that the landlord has not complied with the order. Essentially, the purpose of civil contempt is to really just compel compliance. And the purpose of criminal contempt is to punish the landlord. So to focus just on civil contempt really briefly, a tenant would need to establish several things. So the first is that that there was a lawful order clearly expressing an unequivocal mandate that was in effect. So in other words, there was an ordered correct granted by the court. And like Paul just said, if the order to correct was drafted by the HPD form order, then you therefore have a very clear unequivocal mandate. Number two, you have to prove that there was an order and that it was being disobeyed with reasonable certainty so that the landlord did not attend the access dates, did not make repairs, did not certify them with HPD, for example. Three, the tenant would have to show that the landlord knew about the order, meaning you know they signed the consent order, they were served with the order. Um, and four, the tenant has to show some sort of prejudice. And again, since if you're not seeking criminal contempt, you don't have to show that the landlord's failure was willful. If I just may say something, generally speaking, yes, you do have to show all four of these things to be entitled to contempt. But generally speaking, number one, if you have this an order issued by the court, it is, an, and especially if, uh, as Paul said, you use the HPD form. Those orders are pretty good, unequivocal orders. Um, If the party has appeared and they've been served with a copy of the order, number three, that the the party knew about the order, usually not difficult to prove. Um, And number four, that the tenant was prejudiced. Well, that's also not difficult to prove because there is case law that says the existence of of the serious violation itself is prejudicial to someone that has to live with those conditions. Um, Usually the one um, factor that will end up getting litigated, um, as Vijay mentioned above, was, was the order disobeyed? They may not have complied, but there are 
defenses to the non-compliance. And really, number two is the only issue that really gets a lot of uh, litigation, at least in, in my view. I don't know if the uh, other panelists disagree with that. Yeah, thank you, Judge, because, um, you know, what's also interesting, too, is is not just that, um, you know, these four elements in, in civil contempt that the tenant has to prove, but the judiciary law dictates the rules around contempt and the papers themselves that the tenant would need to bring. So on the paper, the physical paper, the motion has to have specific warnings in even a certain size font. So if you are a tenant pro se, you need to make sure, or even a practitioner, you need to make sure that you don't leave off these warnings from your order to show cause or your notice of motion. And additionally, you have to serve your motion to each landlord respondent personally. I think, Rachel, that's a very good point. There are very strict rules that have to be followed when filing contempt. I'd like to throw something into this discussion and ask, what happens when you have a corporation or a big office like NYCHA and you're trying to get contempt against them? Well, in terms of service, uh, to personally serve a corporation, you have to serve the Department of State. Um, that's basically if there's an LLC that owns the the property, you serve the LLC um at the Department of State, but I would also attempt to serve if you know there there is a um, you know a, a human a, a managing agent and you have their address registered with HPD. So I would also try to serve them personally as well. But if the owner really is just the LLC, you just need to make sure that you have personally served the Department of State. In, in terms of service, if we're talking about an appearing corporation that is represented. Um, for a civil contempt motion, um, I think the law is clear that you can serve, at least if the order to show cause is drafted in such a way, that you can serve the uh, their attorney for civil contempt. Criminal contempt may be different. Make sure you strictly follow whatever direction on service is in the order to show cause. Parties will often prepare, I mean, they prepare the order to show cause, they put the service requirement, and then they don't follow their own service requirement. But they should also be wary of um, the court changing a service requirement and not following that either because they already already have in their mind what they're going to do with the service. So just be super careful with service when it comes to contempt motions. It's a you know, rule of thumb. So, Judge, what happens if these requirements are not followed? Well, then I have an easy decision to make, and it's not going to be uh, great for the uh, person who brought the motion. And, you know, I say easy. I don't want to tell a pro se tenant who has used the wrong wrong form, I'm sorry, I can't help you, hold your, I can't help you on this case. I don't know if I would have held the party in contempt or not, but we can't even reach the issue because... Um, you haven't complied with something that has to be strictly complied with. It's not an easy conversation to have. Um, so we're hoping to catch it on the other end to make sure that if they're moving for contempt, that they do have the right form, that the right language is in there. So we don't have to have that conversation on a return date, which can be, you know, quite a ways away and repairs are not getting done. And there's nothing that the court can do, at least on that contempt motion. So the easiest way to lose a contempt motion is to not comply with those um, 
what can seem to be non-prejudicial um, requirements, but they're strictly um, construed and you have to comply with them. Yeah, so once you bring your motion, you've followed all the rules, you've put on the warning signs on your papers, you've used the right font, you've served properly, um, then the judge really determines if a hearing is necessary. Because sometimes you can prove the landlord's failure to comply with the order to correct on the papers themselves. For example, if a violation in the order to correct were not certified or falsely certified after the time allowed to clear the violations in the order, then you can establish on the papers contempt. Other times, though, a judge might want to have a hearing, basically a mini trial about whether the landlord had complied with the order to correct or had any valid defenses. Right. And I would say just as the movement can easily lose a contempt motion by not doing something technically correct, a respondent landlord can easily lose a contempt motion provided, as you said, the petitioner has those uh, has met its uh, initial burden by not opposing um in papers that include an affidavit from someone with personal knowledge. You will often get opposition uh, papers that, yeah, we did the repairs or we didn't have access, but the person that's putting the affidavit in has never been to the apartment. They have no clue or, I mean, they may have a clue, but legally speaking, their affidavit is worthless in opposition to that type of motion. And that's the easiest way for the respondent to lose on papers a contempt motion. And if that's what's put in in opposition, I, my position has been that a hearing may not be necessary. I would also add that that raises an interesting question as to whether statements alone are sufficient. And it could depend on the order or the type of violations, but in a lot of circumstances, Courts have said that where you have HPD's reports establishing that presumption that you've talked about on prior episodes, that the conditions continue to exist if they're not certified, really many times courts have required landlords to produce not just an affidavit of someone with personal knowledge, but documentary evidence. In an HPD comprehensive case, for example, where we're suing building-wide for tens or hundreds of violations... In any other type of proceeding under general civil litigation, you're expected to deny or rebut the allegations that are made in a complaint or on a summary judgment motion specifically, and it, depending upon what they are, oftentimes one by one. From my perspective, if you're looking at an HPD violation report, each one of those violations is a separate allegation. And it is true that it can be very burdensome and time-consuming and expensive for a landlord to have to produce documentary evidence rebutting each one of those violations, and maybe some of those conditions are more amenable to producing documentary evidence than others. But if you have it, then by all means, you should, you should produce it in opposition. Uh, otherwise, simply a statement that you either repaired the violation or that you have grounds for some kind of defense might not be considered enough. 
I think those are great practice tips for most motion practice, but especially for contempt motions. So let's say that in our scenario, the tenant filed the right form with the right format, with the right font, and with the right service, and the judge found contempt. What can the landlord do? So in uh, in New York, um, if a contempt proceeding, a special proceeding for contempt is filed, which is technically what a, a motion for civil or criminal contempt in housing court is considered a summary contempt proceeding. Um, you have a right to purge your contempt. Um, that should be distinguished from a contempt claim brought pursuant to the penal law, which is a little bit different. Uh, you do not have a, a right to uh, purge contempt there. Um, so uh, just for one second to back up before, the, if, a, if, a, if a tenant brings a motion to find you in contempt, you shouldn't just be opposing it. You should be cross-moving to stay something, to stay a hearing or to stay a finding of a contempt to give you an opportunity to purge the alleged contempt. If you've already been found in contempt, you're, you're already wrong. You're already on the back foot probably two steps further back from the back foot um, and you're really behind the eight ball. So when you're filing a motion to purge contempt or seeking to purge contempt, it goes back to really all of the things we talked about as defenses to civil penalties or really the only thing you can do to make the situation go away, which is to actually do the repairs to actually cure the conditions that are leading to your contempt, to just take care of the problem. Um, I'm sure Rachel and Paul will tell us about, you know, just painting over mold or plastering over leak damage. Um, you can be found in contempt if the repairs you do are inadequate and the conditions come back immediately. Um, you can be found in violation of the order to correct. You can be found in contempt of court if you did a substandard job in trying to cure the problem in the first place. So purging contempt means you have to do it. Um, when I was preparing for the, for the recording of this podcast, I was actually looking at instances where you can lose the right to purge contempt and, uh, Again, as I said before, you have to be proactive with this kind of thing. Um, appealing a, a decision of contempt, losing an appeal, and then having to come back and then asking for a right to purge your contempt. Once an appellate court has affirmed uh, the trial court's decision of a finding of contempt, your right to purge that contempt is gone. So you have to purge immediately. And you do have a right to do it, but you have to do it right away. If you start trying to litigate the finding of contempt and it's affirmed, you'll lose the right to purge. But in housing court, you generally do have a right to try and purge your contempt. But again, it's just fixing the problem. You have to fix the problem. That doesn't mean you'll be absolved from penalties. It doesn't mean you'll be absolved from damages. But uh, you you're doing this at this point to avoid facing jail time or stiffer penalties. 
Yeah, thanks for explaining purging, VJ. because remember, it, it makes sense because the purpose of civil contempt is really just to compel compliance, right? As soon as the the order is then complied with, then the landlord would no longer be in contempt. But you're right, it doesn't actually affect the remedies that the tenants would still be entitled to. Um, so again, if the... Um, if the landlord is found in contempt of court, um, the judge has either held a hearing or decided on the papers, there is contempt, then, like I mentioned earlier, um, it's a powerful tool for tenants because not only is the landlord now required to make the repairs, well, they were always required to make the repairs, but they'll be in contempt until repairs are made. Um, but then the tenant then can also... Um, They'll be awarded damages. They'll be awarded uh, attorney's fees and also a $250 award. And like the judge was also mentioning, damages, you have to just establish damages clearly. And um, you can't establish a damage that is vague or not clear and concise. So when you are bringing a motion for contempt, you want to have all of that information uh, provided to the court. Um, how much time it took away from work, what you had to do, what you had to spend because of the landlord's failure to comply. All of those things, receipts, documentation, you would want to have as a part of your motion so that the judge could make the decision potentially even on the papers. Um, and including a, a thing that tenants can get are attorney's fees. So that's also a great way for uh, tenants to uh, be uh, basically relieved of that burden that they've had to do not only to bring this uh bring this case, but then also have to file more motions and papers to uh, get the relief that they were entitled to in the order. So I think contempt is a great tool for tenant advocates to be using because it does come with a lot of serious um, remedies that can help tenants, but also a lot of really intense incentives for, for landlords you can be sent to jail with civil contempt and you will be in contempt until the repairs are actually made. So I think it is, um, it is a tool that tenants can and should be bringing if the conditions are not corrected within the time required by the order. So, so there is an important distinction, I think, between HPD and tenants with respect to civil contempt which is that HPD generally as a government agency, oftentimes it will not have actual damages to prove, compensatory damages. So being that there are sort of two remedies under civil contempt, one for actual damages, the other for costs and expenses, plus uh, the $250 fine, normally uh, HPD is limited to costs and expenses, which could include attorney's fees. HPD ultimately is a government party that's a, uh, a nominal party that represents nominally the, the interests of tenants. So it's not, uh, there are decisions holding that it is not directly the aggrieved party within the meaning of the civil contempt statute. And so 
there are situations in the past where HPD attempted to come up with mathematical formulas for how damages should be awarded to it on civil contempt, and the courts rejected that approach and suggested that because, as Rachel and the, the judge said, that it's a remedial remedy, that though just making a mathematical calculation doesn't really satisfy the purpose of the civil contempt statute. And so when HPD moves for civil contempt, it's oftentimes limited to the $250 fine plus costs and expenses, which could include attorney's fees and potentially seeking incarceration, although that is uh, substantially a discretionary determination by the court as to whether incarceration is warranted. When it comes to civil, uh, when it comes to criminal contempt, a incarceration can be mandated, but when it comes to civil contempt, it's not. And so this is a, a distinction uh, between HPD and tenants seeking uh, remedies, the remedies that are available to them on civil contempt. If I could just say one more thing on those sorts of distinctions uh, as a practice tip, um, I see that uh, advocates often make the an error in thinking that prejudice is damages or you get damages because your client has been prejudiced. Um, prejudice is easy enough to show, as, as I stated before, the, the condition remains open. I think that's per se prejudice. But damages is a distinct thing. It means actual monetary damages that can be proven. Um, I know that some advocates have tried to um, also try to get some non-monetary type things as damages, um, emotional distress or something, and then put that into a something that the court can award damages or a money judgment for. But damages means what it means. It's how you've been impacted monetarily, and you need to back that up in order to get it. Otherwise, you will be stuck with that $250. I think that's an interesting question for, for you, Judge. If you look at other types of civil litigation, for instance, I know of um, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act litigation where, as part of such a claim, the plaintiff who has been allegedly misled by uh, whether it be a law firm or some kind of debt collector, they will bring a garden variety emotional distress damages claim as part of that. And oftentimes they will either succeed or they'll get a substantial settlement. I'm wondering what, if anything, maybe, maybe there is nothing, but um, what distinguishes, what makes garden variety emotional distress damages not compensatory, as opposed to, it sounded like you, uh, you're mentioning producing receipts for, I had to live somewhere else, or I had to replace my refrigerator, actual compensatory damages. What is the distinction and why should, if the answer is that garden variety emotional distress damages should not be available on a civil contempt application, why shouldn't they be? And I, I think the reason this is important is not just because it's it's come up in a law review article we've discussed, but also because oftentimes 
frankly, tenants do feel like the remedies they get in housing court are not sufficient. And if you look at the, in other types of civil proceedings, what the remedies that are that are awarded for garden variety emotional distress damages, they can be in generally maybe the mid five figures in terms of damages. Um, and so it seems like it would be something that uh, tenants might find beneficial if if there were a legitimate basis for that to be a compensatory remedy on a civil contempt application. Well, I, I don't think I have a, a great answer for you. I haven't done a deep dive in terms of saying that we have, that it can be an award um, or your damages on contempt. I cert- We certainly don't have um, the jurisdiction to hear the claim in the first instance, but as uh, compensatory damages, do we all of a sudden have, um, have, have that authority? Maybe we do, but I haven't, uh, I don't have the answer right now. So it's a great question to ask. I I don't have a a good answer for you right now. I don't think we'll know the answer to that until this issue is um, brought in a proper form uh, motion and uh, litigated and then appealed. And then we can see what the actual answer is. So this was a very good overview of a very basic uh, single-issue contempt. The dates were set. They were supposed to do the repairs. Nobody came. But as in everything in our field, let's throw a twist into this scenario. So why don't we talk about what happens if the tenant refuses to give access for the repairs to be done? You have your order to correct. The repairs don't get done within the time frame required. So what happens then? Uh, the defense of they didn't give me access has uh, been along has been around as long as uh, tenants have been seeking repairs um, anywhere, right? Um, but the first question would be, who is claiming that they didn't give access, or who is claiming that the tenant did not give access? Is it uh, the attorney? If it's the attorney as opposed to the, against the tenant who's in court saying, I was home, no one showed up, and the attorney says, well, my client told me they didn't give access. It's an easy decision, right? That's someone with personal knowledge versus someone without personal knowledge. Uh, you know, we make those decisions every day, easy decision. Um, but if it's established with uh, maybe an affidavit from a contractor or handyman that they showed up on the arranged access dates and the tenant wasn't there and it's happened i've held hearings on these issues um then you know maybe there's a good reason in the first instance why the tenant wasn't home they you know people have emergencies but i do certainly think that the repeated failure to provide access can lead to the dismissal uh of a case um, there are a couple of second department appellate term cases that where the court said, well, there has been repeated um, denial or refusal to provide meaningful access. And this case is about repairs. You have to have ex- access to have repairs done. We're going to dismiss this case until until you can come back and tell us that you can that you're going to provide access. So, you know. That's uh, the first issue. As to a tenant who says, it's true, I didn't give access because they sent someone from the streets and this wasn't a licensed professional, 
then you have to get into what kind of violations were at issue and whether the landlord was making a meaningful, meaningful attempt to actually get the condition repaired. And I think uh, HPD and VJ may have um, more to say on, you know, what, type, what types of violations need licensed professionals or professionals and what type may not. It's, um, it's important that if uh, there's an order to correct that a landlord uh, makes a motion to the court to compel access by the tenant. Um, uh, the form of the motion should be by order to show cause. The order to show cause should contain a stay. And the stay should be um, related to enforcement mechanisms, if it is true. You should be putting in um, any prearranged access dates that were in the consent order. You should be, if you've demanded further access because you needed more access, you should be putting in uh, your demand for access. Um, I, Paul can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's um, a week's notice or seven days notice that you have to give. Um, I could be wrong there. Uh, you have to give set, uh, the statutorily required notice to a tenant um, to get the access done. Um, you should have, you know, have your worker take a selfie in front of the uh, in front of the door of the apartment on the date and time. Um, a lot of the times, uh, I've seen sometimes my clients they just show up at nine o'clock, knock on the door, walk away. No, you should probably knock on the door several times throughout the access window. Um, the access window is Monday to Friday, nine to five. The workers should usually be there by noon at the latest. Um, but you know, you should be making a concerted attempt to gain access properly um, in a professional manner. Um, and uh, if you don't get it, you can move to ask the court to order the tenant to give you access. Um, down the line, or you, a landlord can actually move for contempt themselves if a tenant is not giving you access in violation of an order. So um, it's very important that if access is an issue, the landlord gets ahead of civil penalties and ahead of contempt to try and compel access as best they can. Um, it is also it's also a cause of action for a holdover proceeding if a tenant can uh, fail to give you access. So um, that's completely separate topic, but um, it, it it can be um, a cause of action uh, against the tenant if you don't get access for that. Rachel, do you want to add to that scenario? Yeah. So. A lot of times when a tenant is not giving access, it's usually something that um, is a surprise or has not been planned because the tenant has gone through all of this trouble to get their basic repairs or their essential services. And so a lot of times you'll see that, um, you know, a owner shows up without prior notice, you know, they did not um, comply with the statutory required minimum. It's in the administrative code, section 25101. Um, the tenant didn't know, or um, the uh, landlord um, did not schedule previous access. The client is willing, the, the tenant is willing to give access, but the, the, Landlord doesn't have the proper um, protective measures. You know, they're going to break down the walls and they are not putting up plastic. Um, something that would create a, a more dangerous situation um, if 
if the work was done at that time. So oftentimes I'll see clients have no idea access was denied because they weren't home. They had no notice of it or um, they needed to stop something that could have led to a, a bigger problem. And they would be willing to grant access again when the landlord has the tools and the protective gear uh, to make the actual repair. So to piggyback off what Rachel just said, uh, let's throw another uh, twist into this scenario. What happens if the tenant is willing to give access and on the assigned access dates, a handyman comes in to do electrical repair or plumbing work and the tenant does not trust the handyman to do that work? So in New York, it's clear that certain repairs have to be done by licensed workers. That includes electrical work and plumbing work. Um, And so if, you know, just the super shows up to correct the leak, um, then I think the tenant has a credible reason to not provide access. And if the landlord then moves for access, then the tenant should be able to have in their affidavit why they didn't give access and provide alternative dates for when the landlord has their licensed worker um, to give access to do the work at that time. Oftentimes, you'll also see um, landlords who have Class C violations for infestations and not engage in integrated pest management. And so, you know, if some guy just comes around with, you know, sticky traps and poison spray, that's not enough to actually um, do the work required. A tenant could also ask for other dates of access and require that the landlord provide um, licensed workers to do integrated pest management. I would like to address some of what, what Vijay said. Characteristically, of course, he's provided close to the best possible advice for an owner, but from HPD's perspective and perhaps from tenants' perspectives as well, there are a few things that I think we could point out. First would be in terms of seeking the stay and in order to show cause. An interesting thing in housing court is that we don't have the rules that they do in Supreme Court where you have to give 24 hours notice of filing in order to show cause to seek a TRO. From HPD's perspective, especially especially in HPs, at least in HPs, that's extremely problematic because there's a provision of the CPLR 6313 that provides that a court cannot enter a TRO that enjoins a government agency from enforcing a statutory duty. Now, as we're discussing in this episode, the vast majority of HPD's enforcement remedies, at least the ones that most people know about and the ones that landlords are most concerned with, are judicial remedies. They take place in court. And so we are not entitled to penalties until a judge awards them, just like tenants. We cannot seek contempt until a judge issues an injunction. And so if you're an HPD attorney, if I see a NICEF notification or an email that has an order to show cause that says enforcement is stayed, enforcement of the order to correct is stayed, civil penalties are stayed, this proceeding is stayed, I'm respectfully sending an email to the judge, posting something to NICEF, objecting to that, I think that uh, 
sometimes perhaps implicit comparisons are made to eviction proceedings where someone's in danger of losing their home. I think in the context of an HP, that can sometimes be problematic and inappropriate because you're talking about public welfare enforcement. And additionally, you're talking about a judicial proceeding. You're not talking about uh, a hearing before an HPD ALJ the way you would with a tenant whose Section 8 voucher might be terminated. You're not talking about an oath hearing for a landlord who incurred a stop work order or a DOB violation. You're before a neutral, independent civil court judge. And what that means is that ultimately uh, the defendant will have the opportunity, and that's the whole point of the housing part process, uh, one of the points after the housing part was created, was so that there would be a hearing on the merits. And when I say hearing, I don't necessarily mean trial or testimony. Obviously, the court could decide things on summary disposition if that's appropriate. But when uh, a landlord seeks a stay of these proceedings, I would always object to that from HPD's perspective because they'll always have the opportunity to raise defenses on the merits. And technically speaking, the value of a stay versus raising those defenses, it could be argued, but it's certainly a good recommendation to make to a landlord. Um, as to, to access, HPD does have regulations on access. Rachel mentioned uh, the administrative code. It's actually uh, not to, it's not that uh, crucial of a distinction, but sometimes it gets confused. It's actually HPD's regulations and not the administrative code. So uh, HPD's regulations are in the rules of the city of New York, and that is, as Rachel said, section 25-101. It's title 28 of the rules of the city of New York. Uh, I I could be wrong, but I don't believe that the notice provisions for access are actually in the housing maintenance code. They're in HPD's regulation, regulations. So the bare minimum is 24 hours. However, if it's for the purpose of making improvements, and these regulations are very detailed, so you can read them for yourself, but if it's for the purpose of making improvements, it's actually a week's written notice. However, the regulations say very vaguely that if it's an urgent condition, for example, a Class C violation, then a landlord does not have to give give a week's written notice and they can try another method like making a phone call or showing up at a reasonable time. Um, the owner's right of access that is in the housing maintenance code in section 2008 says that the owner shall exercise that right in a reasonable time and manner. So that leaves a lot of discretion to the court because that's not a very descriptive, uh, way to, to impose that requirement. And so like Rachel was saying, if it's about the quality of repairs, if it's about the time and manner that the landlord showed up, if it's about the person they sent with whom the landlord knows the tenant has a dispute, those are all issues of fact that a court could, in its discretion, find might the landlord might not have exercised that right in a reasonable time and manner. Lastly, I would just mention, VJ mentioned moving for an order for access. From HPD's perspective, and I won't speak for every attorney at the agency. I think it's maybe people do have different opinions. So maybe I should say from my perspective, but I think there is an open question as to whether, uh, you know, the judge mentioned before there's an open question as to whether the court has subject matter jurisdiction to award garden variety, emotional distress damages, potentially even in the context of a contempt application. I think there's an open question as to whether housing court has subject matter jurisdiction to 
issue a general equitable injunction compelling a tenant to provide access. There was just a case in the second department this year that said that tenants do not have that right. I believe it was tenants were seeking to have the landlord provide access to DOB, which is a little confusing of a remedy to me that they would seek that. It wasn't apparently wasn't even for themselves. Um, but there is also uh, there are also older cases that say that at least under certain circumstances in the in the second department, a landlord can't seek that relief. Uh, there is one that does in the first uh, department, appellate term first department. But this issue, uh, from my perspective, is not entirely settled that a landlord can seek an injunction for access. It seems to me, given that that right uh, right of access is immediately followed by a section about uh, this being basically a breach of the tenant's duties and obligations, that a landlord's proper remedy might be an eviction proceeding or, as the judge mentioned earlier, uh, dismissal of the enforcement action the tenant is seeking. But I'm aware of situations, for example, of where landlords move for contempt in the housing part against the tenant for not providing access. And I don't know that necessarily the Housing Maintenance Code authorizes that because I don't know that there is a cause of action for access for landlords in the housing part. This brings us to the end of our fourth episode. We hope that you enjoyed our discussion about contempt and going back to law school with a little hypo. I would like to thank all of our panelists for appearing and to the City Bar for giving us this opportunity to record our fourth episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Housing Park Proceedings and the Reality of Housing Court, a podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at www.nycbar.org podcasts. This podcast was produced and edited by Alex Cardaris.